Sometimes it's time, you need time to put a guitar down, those kinds of things. So it's good to have 20 seconds of just and get a sip of water. Um, over the next week, eight weeks or so, we are going to be spending time in a, in a series called Letters to Leaders. And it's going to be an examination of the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, we just recently finished up our whole summer looking at the book of Acts. And so when we think of Acts, we generally think of an overview of church life, right? You read Acts, and it gives you this idea of this is how the church is supposed to look. Right? It's this kind of idyllic view in a way where we see, well, we're not like this, but we should be. And you get this kind of convinced nature. I would hope that most of you after the sermon series on Acts would say, man, I wish our church was more like that. And that's exactly how you should feel. The books of First, Second Timothy and Titus kind of get into the nitty gritty of those things. And so there's two kind of differences as we look at these series together that we need to understand. The first is that primarily the book of Acts is dealing with the church. So when, when we've gotten up here and we've preached about things in Acts, we've said, we as the church need to be this way. The books of Timothy and Titus deal primarily with the person. And so it's the idea of, well, for the church to be this way, the individual has to be like this. And so this is practical, applicable stuff that tells us how we as Christians are to live in such a way that we could hope that if we all do that and we walk with Christ as he calls us to, we could actually start to reflect the way that the church in Acts looks to some degree. Right? So Acts is largely theory for us because we have to take it and apply it. Timothy, Titus are largely praxis for us. So if you were looking through that sermon series over the summer and going, man, I just, just, tell me, just tell me what the Bible says about how I should live. This is where we're going to get there. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a neat way to follow up looking at the early church by saying, well, what does the leadership of the early church say about how those inside of it should be behaving and acting and thinking and praying and serving and all those things? And so we'll get into these kind of practical things as we go through the next eight weeks. But today... We're going to look a little bit more introductory. Uh, we're not actually going to touch any of those three books today. Uh, today we're going to look at some background on them and get into a little bit of church history. Um, if you enjoy our discussion on church history today, then I would encourage you to join the men's history Bible study that starts this Tuesday evening. Um, and you can continue to work through historical things if that's kind of the way your mind works and you like to think in that way and study church history. It's fascinating what we can glean as we dig into what the history of the church has done and where we've been versus where we're going. And so I would encourage you to be a part of that if you're a guy. And if there is a huge group of women who end up saying, well, I want to be part of a study of church history, well, we can put together something. Come find me. If there's enough of you guys, we'll, we'll put together a group for you as well. All right. Timothy first and second Timothy and Titus. They're, they're three, three books. They're all written by Paul, and they're all written to young leaders in the church as an encouragement, as an advice, as some correction, as pointing out the issues in their churches and how they might deal with them. So you have to read this as a letter from a mentor to a mentee who's young and starting out and saying, I've seen you do these great things. Here's how you need to encourage your people. Here's what they need to be doing. Here's what's going on that I'm not loving so much and we might need to be working on. So each of the books distinctively has kind of its own little feel and vibe. The book of 1 Timothy, the primary issue is Timothy is a, is a pastor. He's leading the church in Ephesus. And so Paul 
Paul had him there. Paul sent him there. And he's writing him encouragement on how to pastor that church and do it well. Right? Think of this as, you know, if you, if you end up electing me as your pastor, uh, I'm, I start getting letters from, from Bob, from Paul, from Dave Wyrick. They're suggesting, hey, as someone who's done this for years and years and years, here's some things that, that might be helpful to you. And here's some things I'm seeing that aren't great. Right? It's, it's, it's a letter that is designed to encourage and lift up Timothy to do his ministry well. And the second letter is pretty similar. The only difference is this. It's a much more personal touch letter. Paul writes 2 Timothy to Timothy, knowing that he is about to be executed. And he knows it's probably the last thing he's going to send. And so ask yourself, if you, you know, if you have children or grandchildren, and you knew you were about to be executed, and you had the chance to write kind of the last hurrah of advice for them for life, what are some of the things that you would encourage them towards as followers of Christ? That's kind of what 2 Timothy is about. Titus is written to Titus. Titus was left in Crete. Uh, they were there ministering together, him and Paul, and Paul left him there. And so he's writing to that church. And, and the theme within the book of Titus is this idea of link between faith and practice. And so when, when, when Paul writes to Titus, what he's trying to get to is inevitably, yes, faith is how we're saved, faith alone. But inevitably, if you have a faith, it's going to show itself in these kinds of behaviors. And here's, here's the practice that goes along with the faith that you have. Right? So there should be a link. If we say we're Christians, we should act like it. And that should be a natural outpouring of, of who God says we are as his new creation. And so he writes these things of encouragement. You see a lot of stuff directed with how leaders and elders and things are to conduct their houses and those types of things. Because he's saying, if you say you have the mind of Christ, well, then people should probably see it in you when you walk around every day. So those are kind of the three books. And each of these has this practical insight to Christian leaders. And the word leader keeps coming up in our sermon series is letters to leaders. But you might say to yourself, well, I'm not a leader. I've never been an elder. I'm not a deacon. Um, I volunteer to set up tables every once in a while, but does that make me a leader? Um, maybe I can go home for the next eight weeks and sleep in and just come back whenever you've finished talking to the leaders. <laughs> That's not what we're dealing with today. Um, this book is not meant to be exclusively addressed to just the leaders of the church. And so this morning, we're going to look at that little tidbit of why is it that we, as the whole body of Christ, when Scripture talks about leaders and how they are to conduct themselves, why is it that we actually should be listening to that? And the best way to do this, and it's going to sound weird, but stay with me, the best way to do this is to trace through the biblical concept of priests. We're going to look through the history of how priests functioned from the beginning of time all the way through even today. And we're going to see what this, what this notion, this idea of priests actually means to us as the body of Christ. And now when I say priest, don't hear me saying like a Catholic priest. Right? Priest is a much more universal term, and we'll find that out at the end of our time here this morning. So what are priests? Um, the first priests in scripture were Adam and Eve. Uh, that might sound really weird to you, but they were. The priest's job is to mediate the relationship between God and the rest of the creation. Right? They, they go back and forth. And so when you see today even, priests take, they will take a confession of someone in the Catholic Church, and then they will mediate that to God, and they will absolve them of their sin. It's this mediated thing. And so the idea of priests <clears throat> as a biblical thing is people that relate directly to God in a more specific way 
and then take that relating and, and communicate it back and forth to the people. And then later on in Scripture, we get the office of prophet, and those things kind of become a little bit unique, where prophets are the ones that speak for God, and priests are the ones that speak for the people. And so one comes down, one goes up, and we have this kind of fleshing out of things. But Adam and Eve were the first priests. The creation, created order was the first temple, and the garden was the first holy of holies that we see. They walked with God directly. They were able to be with God and talk with God and hear from God and be loved by their creator directly. They saw each other. They were able to be in his presence. The way that Revelation describes we will once again be allowed to be one of these days. But it was this direct presence. They could come around the corner and see, oh, there he is. Let me talk to him. Let me be in the presence and in the midst of God and let me hear directly. And then sin entered the world. And the consequence of that sin was that they were banished from the garden and banished from the presence of God, the direct presence. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, there's all these times where the Lord appears, right? With Moses, he appears in the burning bush, but we don't have this direct appearance because if they saw the, God, the Lord's presence in a direct way, they, they wouldn't be able to survive it. The Lord cannot be with that which is unclean. And so this chasm exists. Right? When we talk about the gospel, that's what it is. We sinned, we all fall short, we're separated from God. And then you have those analogies where the cross becomes the bridge that lets us be reconnected and walk across. Right? But the priesthood of their, of their existence kind of ceases in some way there. And the Lord, from that moment on, gives them this first gospel. And he promises that Jesus will come, right? the serpent will ultimately have an offspring, and then the woman will have an offspring, and the woman's offspring will crush the serpent. Right? And ultimately, that's the foreshadowing of Jesus to come. So sin enters the world, they're separated, and right as the punishment is doled out, the Lord says, by the way, I have a plan to fix all of this. Right? So that's the first priesthood we see. The next time we really see this come up in a concrete way is after the Exodus. And so if you recall, the Lord saves his people Israel out of Egypt. He carries them through the sea and he establishes them as his people. Right? He sends Moses up to the mountain. They get the stone tablets. They bring down the law. And he says, here's, here's the rules for my people. Here's what it will look like to be my people Israel. I will be your God. That's my promise. You will be my people. I will be with you. I will walk with you. I will be among you. And you will be my people by living the way that I have prescribed that you live. Right? That's what the law is. It's this, this identity card for the people of God. Right? That's why when the people get the law in Exodus, they celebrate. Because they finally know what it means. They want to know, how do we live as God's people? Well, here it is. Praise God, we have a way now. And so they start to live that out. And Aaron, in Leviticus 16, is set as the first high priest. This is where we really have the office of priest starting out. So Aaron gets this job. And Aaron, as a high priest, has some very specific things. I would encourage you, I know this sounds crazy, I would encourage you to go home and read Leviticus chapter 16. It is exhaustive. And the whole chapter deals with how Aaron is supposed to work to have the atonement set for the people of God. Here's how Aaron will atone for the sins of Israel. Right? It involves this, this bull and, and goats, and one goat gets sacrificed, and the other has the sin placed on it and is sent out of the camp. And there's all kinds of ceremonial washings to make sure that he's clean. And only he gets to enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And he only gets to do it once a year. 
And he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. And there's all these things. It's this exhaustive thing. That's why I don't have it up today. But, but the priest has these very specific things that he has to do in order to atone for the sins of the people so that there's sacrifices made. This is the introduction of the sacrificial system. Sacrifices are made of animals on behalf of the people's sin so that they can stand clean in front of God. So that as his presence, you know, cloud by day, fire, all those things are, are, are resting on the people, that they remain clean and they remain as part of his people because otherwise they are unclean and not worthy of his presence. So that becomes the priest's job. He takes the sins of the people and he atones for them in the way that God calls them to. And it is exhaustive. And then I want to read this very end of it. This is the end of 16, 29 through 34. And it, the stuff that we just talked about, all of these things that he has to do, it shall be a statute to you forever. That in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priests in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. And he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded to Moses. Here's what I want you to notice. Three different times, and this will be a statute forever. So the Lord tells them, here's the sacrifice system. You're going to take bulls and goats and you're going to do it in this way. Every year you're going to do this, and it will go on forever. So why aren't we sacrificing bulls? It says forever. It doesn't say do this until the New Testament starts getting written. Forever. Now, rest assured, if you elect me as your pastor, I will not start making bull sacrifices up, up in the church. I can promise you that. Although, I mean, it might be, it might be a interesting. No, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Right. We're not going to have bull sacrifices, but we do have to wrestle. It's a valid question. Because we can't just say, well, Jesus, so we don't do it anymore. Well, why? Why is it that we no longer make these sacrifices? We don't necessarily think of us as having priests today even anymore. Right? You, don't, you don't call your pastor a priest. <clears throat> That's what the Catholics do, is what we think to ourselves. Right? We don't do that. We don't have priests. There's no confessional booth over there that during the week you all come in and tell me all your worst, darkest, deepest secrets. That's not what we do. Well, why, why not? And here it's worth looking at um, the history of the Reformation. We can talk for a whole year about Reformation history. And we as good Presbyterians who are Reformed as a people <clears throat> should someday be talking about those kinds of historical things. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. But in essence, if you've never really studied the Reformation history before, this idea is really what it's all about. By the time we get to the church in the 15th and 16th century, this idea of priests and mediating has been taken to a whole nother level. The medieval church had these classes of people. And if you were a priest, you were in a different class. You were closer to God than the rest of us. There was something about you, right? 
I have family, ever since I've been in ministry, my, my grandma always has this joke that she, you know, when she wants something to be prayed for, she will say, well, you know, you talk to God, you have a direct line. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I don't tell her that, but, you know. But, but that's, not, that's not the reality for us, right? In, in the medieval church, that was the reality. And in some ways in Catholicism, that's still the reality today. There is this idea that priests have a... a, a a relationship, a connection, a closeness, a way of relating to God that is above the rest. And so the way that the people worship is through the priest. Not through one another. That's why in the Catholic Church there's a pope. right? What's, what is law in the Catholic Church? Scripture and tradition. Faith and works. Right? We have to have the faith and then whatever, if the pope declares something, that's, that's it. There's the, because, why? Because he is, is said to be somebody that has this connection, that has a hierarchy when it comes to God's people, that is above the rest. And the early reformers, they started to look at scripture, and they started to say, this doesn't add up. This isn't right. And they had all kinds of other issues, things like what is happening when we take communion and all types of other things that we can get into. But the real basic core of it was this idea of a lot of what the church has become is not about what actual scripture teaches, but about what people have heaped upon. And that's been the trouble of people all along, right? When we're in the New Testament, we have the Pharisees who are adding to the law. We talked about that last week. It's the trend of humans to continue to do that, to add more things to the gospel. And so the reformers, reform means to bring something back to what it originally was, right? They're not formers making up new stuff. They're reformers. So they're saying, no, we need to go back. Scripture doesn't say that we need priests to relate to God. Right? And so they, they start to argue that and they start to look at how the church operated and that all things should be really different. Priests are not the way that it's supposed to be. Well, where do they get this crazy idea? Well, they get it from Scripture. Here's what Scripture tells us about the priesthood. When, the, when God called up Aaron as the high priest, and he set this whole thing of atonement up, and he said, this will be how it's going to go on forever and ever. It was a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. It's important that we understand that. The people in the Old Testament, they weren't saved by sacrifice itself, but they were saved by the promise of the ultimate sacrifice. And when they sacrificed animals, what it was doing is pointing to Christ. A person in the Old Testament is saved the exact same way that we are saved in the New Testament, through faith in Christ. They were saved by faith in Christ to come. We are saved by faith in Christ of what he has done because he has come. And so when Aaron does all of these things, it's, it's this foreshadowing of what will happen when he comes. <clears throat> this is what we call covenant theology. If you're reformed, that's covenant theology is what we believe in versus this idea that things in the Old Testament were one way, well, now they're this way. No. <clears throat> covenant suggests that as, Lord, as the Lord makes promises with people throughout redemptive history, that these things build on one another. So that when he speaks to Abraham and then, well, to Noah and then Abraham, and then he speaks to Moses and he keeps going through and there's the new covenant, that what happens is he's continuously revealing his plan for redemption. Animal sacrifices were one part of the picture. He goes, you don't have the whole picture yet. So do this for now, but it's pointing to this. 
down the road. It's pointing to that. And so Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the three offices of the Old Testament, of priest and of prophet and of king. He didn't come to get rid of that stuff. It says, right, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Skipping ahead here. This thing keeps jumping two slides. I don't know why. And so this priesthood introduced, uh, it gives us a, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm losing my thought. There. Um, Jesus comes in and is the perfect priest, prophet, and king. And we see this as we look at Hebrews 4.14. It says, since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. If we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so what happens is Jesus fulfills those three things, not that they are now gone, but that they are no longer necessary outside of him. And so we do not need prophets because Jesus is the ultimate prophet. What is the role of a prophet? To interpret the Lord's words and will to the people. Well, what better person to interpret the will of God than someone who is 100% human and 100% divine? Right? He's the ultimate king. He sits on the throne, ready to rule and reign, and he will come again, make no mistake, in power to rule and to reign. Jesus is the ultimate king. We need no other. And finally, Jesus is the ultimate prophet or ultimate priest. Priests mediate between God and mankind. Again, fully human, fully divine. And then he takes it one step further. What did priests do? They made sacrifices. Aaron would get up and he would sacrifice on behalf of all the people. Well, the Lord sacrificed too. The Lord Jesus Christ, as priest, made a sacrifice. But the twist is that he himself became the sacrifice. Bulls and goats and sheep were temporary. They were meant to be the symbolic thing that that held off the wrath of God. But the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is perfect and ultimate. And so when it says in the Old Testament, this shall be your statute forever, that's true. You this morning are in need of sacrifices to be made to atone for your sins. You are. But Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross of himself as perfect was so complete and so perfect that nothing else is required. He is continuously your sacrifice made to atone for your sins. And so we do have that statute and it is going on and on forever, but it's complete in Christ. We get here and we, and we serve communion and we talk about the blood and the body and we take, we're reminded of the fact that his sacrifice is all we need. If we were to continue sacrificing animals today, and this is why you won't see me bringing a bull, it would be saying, whatever Jesus did is not enough. We need this as well. And so in the midst of that sacrifice, he also eliminates the need for there to be specific priests and that's what the reformers had in mind. 
when they said, no, this is not the way it's supposed to work. Martin Luther in the 16th century coined this phrase, the priesthood of all believers. And the idea was because Christ came and he is our ultimate priests, the way that you and I relate to God as people of the body isn't through some priest that stands there in the front, but our priest is Jesus. We don't need another. And so you all are priests. And if you want any evidence of this, all we have to do is go to 1 Peter. Verse 5 says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then a little further down again, in case we didn't get it, but you are, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And what do we do as priests? That you might proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We all are priests. Every one of us. Do you know that? You're a priest. You can put it in your LinkedIn profile if you want. People ask you questions, but go ahead and put it there. If you ever wondered, how can I start a conversation about God at work? Put priest in your job description. Just see what people do. You'll at least get one question, right? Well, I put it here because this crazy bald guy told me I was a priest. We are priests. So what does it mean that we're priests? It means that we have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply scripture to our own lives. You do not depend on me to stand up here and tell you what scripture says. I am not the scriptural authority. As a matter of fact, you as Christians are called to test anything I do say up here against what the word of God actually says. And so the Lord does, in some ways, set people apart to be specific teachers of the word. There's this idea of spiritual gifts that we have. In Ephesians 4, we see this talked about, that some people are called to be teachers, others apostles, and those types of things. But, but in terms of status, I do not have a direct line to God that you don't also have. There's no difference between you and I in the kingdom of God. None. That's the biggest place in which we differ from the Catholic Church, by the way. They don't, they don't believe that. But you are priests. And so what does this mean for us today? You have to come to grips with the reality that because you are called to be priests, you are called to be leaders of the Lord's community church. I don't care if you were never elected or ordained as an elder or served as a deacon or volunteered on a committee. You're called to be priests and leaders, each of you individually. The call on your life for ministry and the call on my life for ministry are virtually identical. The only difference is that the Lord has specifically set my life and called me to a, to a teaching type of ministry on, on a vocational level. But the call to, to carry the gospel, to live as leaders of Christ, and to take things like the books of Timothy and Titus that we're going to get into seriously is upon the lives of every one of us as the priesthood of all believers. So over the next seven more weeks, as we get into practical stuff, and make no mistake, we'll get into practical stuff. We're going to get into all those things of doctrine and morality and character and what it looks like to suffer and serving and attitudes that we are to adopt as the people of God as individual Christians. We'll get into all those things, but just know that you don't, you don't get to skip stuff that is addressed to leaders in the church because that's us. Right? 
visited a church once that on their bulletin they had their staff listings and they listed all the people that were working in the church and on the very last thing it said, minister is the congregation. It's because we're priests. We are set apart as the people of God, as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That is your identity as a follower of Christ. That is what he tells you that you are. That is what he proclaims over you and that is what he calls you to be. And so I would encourage you as we spend the next few weeks, read through those three books. They are short. We're not asking you to go through the whole of Chronicles or the book of Ezekiel, although that would be fun. But just take some time in your, in your mornings or your evenings and read through the books of Timothy and Titus and read it as a letter addressed to you of encouragement. And we'll dig through it together over the next two months or so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us this morning. And Lord, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make ultimate atonement, you call all of us priests. We thank you that you not only call us, but that you equip us to be your people in this world, that as we go out, that we can share the gospel, that we can open the word to ourselves Lord, we think back in church history and we understand that that's not how it's always been. That The people of God for many, many, many years were dependent on someone else to interpret scripture. We have it in our living rooms. And so we ask that you would open up that word to us. That you would allow us to see and to know what it says. That as your priests, that we would be able to interpret scripture. And to know the mind of Christ. That as we seek to live out your calling in our lives that we would do so with a power and an authority that comes only through you. Lord, we ask that you be with us this day as we make decisions about a church and the future that we want to take and the directions that we want to go. And Lord, as we get together to celebrate with food and games and fun and fellowship, we ask that you would be in the midst of it, that you would keep us safe, that you would keep the weather beautiful, and that we might be a people gathered in your name. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said,